good morning. In case you haven't heard, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. Um, I'm happy you're here. If you're new here, welcome. We're happy to have you. Um, We are going to be picking up in our series through Jesus' final teaching uh, in John chapter 16 this morning. Before we get into that, uh, let me pray for us. Father God, we come into your presence this morning to worship you, to sing back the words that you've given us in your word, words of praise to you. God, we thank you that you've given us your word, that you've seen fit to reveal yourself to us. Even though we turned our back on you, God, you made a way for us to know you in your word, and we thank you for that. God, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to make a way for us to be brought back into fellowship with you. And I pray, God, that this morning through your word, through Jesus' work on the cross, and through the power of your Holy Spirit applying your word to our hearts this morning, that you would help us to see Jesus, even to see him in our suffering. We love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was telling some folks before the service, for some reason I've been super anxious all week about this. Uh, sometimes I get mildly anxious, but this week it's been especially bad. My stomach's been in knots. I've not been sleeping. I don't know why. Um, I just want to be real with you guys. I've been real anxious about this. So, um, But I've also been really fed preparing for this. And so I'm looking forward to doing this together. But just know that I'm, for some reason, just super anxious about this. So I love you guys. You all are family. This is actually really easy to do because it's just my family here. Um, it's God's word. We're here to feast on it together. So let's jump into it. So we're picking up in our series on Jesus', Jesus final teaching. And as Tom mentioned last week, uh, this teaching is sometimes known as the upper room discourse. And it's known as the upper room discourse because Jesus is with his disciples in Jerusalem in an upper room. And they're there to remember or to mark the Passover. In the Passover, God in his faithfulness and power delivered his people from oppression and from slavery in Egypt. And he delivered them by passing over any household that had spread the blood of a spotless lamb over their doorposts. You all remember that? Any house that didn't have the blood of the lamb smeared on it, God sent his spirit into that house and took the firstborn son. And it was that tenth plague that God sent on Egypt that finally broke Pharaoh and he relented and let God's people go. And so every year, this was a really important festival, every year the Jews would come to Jerusalem and they would remember God's faithfulness and his deliverance in the Passover. So this passage is sometimes known as the upper room discourse because they're in an upper room together. But it's also known as uh, Jesus' farewell discourse or his farewell teaching So Jesus is now wrapping up his ministry on earth. He's about to go to the cross and return to the Father. And so this is sometimes also known as farewell teaching. And we're going to look at the passage more from that angle this morning. So I use the phrase, Jesus is wrapping up his earthly ministry. And that's something that would not have resonated with the disciples. Um, It's something all of us likely know that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins especially Midwesterners, especially Midwesterners who grew up in youth group. 
I'm not saying that's everybody here, but you're probably not surprised to hear that Jesus didn't uh, come when he first came, set up his kingdom on earth, and usher in a new era of peace and shalom for the Jews, right? That's not surprising to anyone. But to Jesus' disciples in the upper room celebrating the Passover with him, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have seen it that way, right? So we have the benefit of hindsight, as well as lots and lots and lots of uh, children's curriculum developed around letters that these same disciples would later write once they saw and understood what Jesus was doing. But here in the upper room, they didn't have that perspective. So I thought it would be fun to send you guys home with some homework. Go read Paul's letter to the Ephesians in light of what we hear today and see how God's word is so perfect Everything Jesus does, he does according to the scriptures. He's about doing the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is revealed in the scriptures. And so we see, we see what we're going to see today all over the Bible. Um, I just happened to read it in Ephesians and was encouraged. Okay, so we, now sitting here today, 2,000 years after Jesus, know how the story ends. But Jesus' disciples on this night, in the final hours before he would go to the cross, to them it just did not add up. This is not what they'd signed up for. They did not see the story ending this way. And so their hearts are troubled. So let's read uh, from John 16, starting in verse 16. This is Jesus talking. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, "What What is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me? And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will see me? And you will not see me? And again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you receive that, that your joy may be full. So the folks in this room with Jesus had been with him for the past three years, walking with him, uh, doing ministry alongside Jesus. His disciples believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the promised deliverer, that God had said, He would send them to deliver them finally, once and for all, out of oppression. And so they left everything to follow him. To help think about this idea of what it might have looked like for the Jews to uh, wait expectantly for their Messiah, I thought of Advent season when we're waiting to celebrate Jesus' birth, right? So think about some of the songs we sing during Advent season. Come thou long expected Jesus. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. 
and ransom captive Israel. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Right? So these, these are the, uh, this is the mindset of the Jew waiting for the, for the Messiah to come. God has promised a deliverer, and we're waiting for him to come. And he's going to come and establish his kingdom on earth and deliver us from uh, our hardship. So the disciples had found the Messiah, and they would leave everything behind to follow him. I want to make one other point here about the disciples. I think it's, it's easy to think about the disciples as being these uh, bearded sages that have all this incredible wisdom, right? Um, they may, for the ones that made it to uh, you know, an old age where they could grow an awesome beard, uh, they may have had wisdom. You know, we may see them that way, but that's not the group that was following Jesus when he first came. These were likely late teen, early 20 young men, young, energetic, bright-eyed, naive men, and they had found the Messiah. So we're going to actually flip back to Matthew chapter 16, which is on page 480, uh, if you're using a Bible from the seat. And we're going to start in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Jesus says, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the promised deliverer that we've been waiting on. And Jesus affirms that. I know oftentimes we, we don't think that Jesus uh, claimed to be the Messiah or claimed to be Christ. But uh, here to his disciples, he's affirming this, saying, yes, Peter, this has been revealed to you from God. I am the Messiah. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And Jesus goes a step further and actually honors Peter's faith and saying, yes, I believe that you're the, you're the one that we've been waiting for. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a special place in my church uh, that I'm building here. You're, you're Peter, and on you, the rock, I'm going to build my church. So Peter's feeling pretty good at this point. Um, I love this passage because it's a really great snapshot of Peter uh, in all of his youthful zeal. So Peter's feeling pretty good at this point. He got the answer right, and he also gets a special place in the work that Jesus is doing. So let's read on verse 20. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now this sounds a little counterintuitive. The Christ that the Jews were anticipating was to come and establish his kingdom on earth and call all the Jews back to himself and reestablish the nation of Israel. So you would think that if the Christ had shown up, who they'd been waiting on, that they ought to go tell people, hey, the Messiah that we've been waiting for is here, right? Now it's possible based on what, where the disciples go next that 
um, they had some idea of where Jesus was going with this. Don't tell them that I'm the, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. The disciples had seen the Jewish leaders start to get anxious about what Jesus was doing and start to get anxious about the way people were, were responding to it. And they may well have thought, Jesus doesn't want us to tell people that he's the Christ because the Pharisees are going to get anxious about it, that um, the people are going to get excited that the Messiah has come and cause an uprising and Rome is going to squash us. That must be what Jesus meant when he said, don't tell people that I'm the Christ. What Jesus actually means is, I've come to do the will of my Father. The will of my Father is revealed in Scripture, and it's not yet my time. Jesus knows as soon as he publicly professes to be the Christ, that the Jewish leaders are going to hand him over uh, and hang him on the cross, and his hour has not yet come. This is not the Jewish leaders doing. This is Jesus. Later in Matthew, he says, I lay down my own life. Nobody takes it from me, but I do this on my own accord. This is Jesus. Jesus is in charge here, and he's doing the will of the Father. Okay, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. <clears throat> so again, Peter, feeling pretty good about himself, just heard from Jesus' mouth, Yes, I am the Messiah that you've been waiting for. And in Peter's mind, that means the deliverer is here. This is over. He's going to establish his reign, establish his kingdom. Awesome. And then Jesus' very next words are, I have to go and suffer and die. And Peter, to Peter, it just does not compute, right? They wanted Jesus' kingdom, but they didn't want his cross. And that's why in the upper room, they're starting to get anxious. Verse 23, Jesus responds, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter had been looking for deliverance, just like uh, all the other Jews who were waiting on the Messiah. They'd been looking for present deliverance, deliverance from their present uh, opposition and oppression and suffering. And Jesus says, get behind me. You are, you're no longer thinking about the things of God. Earlier when you said, you're the Christ, you're from God, I affirmed that and said, yes, you're, you're thinking like God here. But when Peter says, Jesus, you can't die, you're the Messiah. You came here to establish your kingdom. Jesus says, you're no longer thinking the things of God. So if that's the case, what is God thinking in this case? Why must Jesus go to the cross? Jesus came to do the will of the Father, and the will of the Father is exactly what the disciples are looking for. He wants to deliver them. He wants to gather his sheep back to himself into one people. The problem is he can't do that in their current state. God can't uh, bring his sheep back into himself in their sin. Their sin has to be dealt with, and they can't do it. And so God, in Christ, sent his people a Passover lamb to atone for their sin. So the disciples were right that Jesus was the Christ. They were right that he'd come to deliver his people. But even in the upper room, as they're sitting there, remembering the Passover, celebrating the Passover, remembering God's faithfulness in delivering his people, they miss that the Passover lamb is sitting there with them. 
So the disciples are troubled, right? Jesus had come as the Messiah. He'd said, yes, I'm, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And now he's talking about going away and he's talking about them having to suffer. <clears throat> so the disciples are scared, right? They don't know what's coming next. They thought they knew what was coming. Perhaps they were even wrong about Jesus being the Messiah and what that might mean for them now that they've associated with this guy who's become so unpopular, he's about to be sent to the cross. So if you look at verse 16 of our passage from this morning back in John 16, I'm sorry, verse 19. Sorry, let's start in 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. I thought he was here for good. I thought he was bringing the kingdom, and now he's saying a little while, and you're not going to see me. What's Jesus talking about? Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. <clears throat> Jesus knows that his disciples are scared. He knows that they're beside themselves and they don't know what to do next. In fact, Jesus knew long before that he, what he was calling uh, his disciples to was a, a road of suffering. He knew that he himself had come to earth to go to the cross. This wasn't news to Jesus. And he's tender towards them. He's not, he doesn't get angry with them that they don't understand uh, what he's talking about. So if you look back at verse 1 of chapter 16, Jesus says, I've said all these things to keep you from falling away. So he knows that the disciples are getting desperate and that there's a chance of them falling away and disregarding Christ and, and turning away. And so he prepares them. He prepares them for this suffering and for, this, um, for their being afraid. In fact, Jesus' whole ministry leading up to this point has served this purpose, to call his sheep in and prepare them to carry on his ministry even through suffering. So I mentioned earlier that uh, all of this is in the whole Bible. If you go read from Genesis to Revelation, you will see everything in Scripture is serving this purpose to prepare God's people to come back in to his glory and to fellowship with him and the Father. So just in Jesus' short time with his disciples, he's explained to them that his kingdom is not of this world and that anyone who follows him is going to have to first suffer before entering glory. He's preparing them. If you remember our previous sermon series, we looked at Jesus' first teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the persecuted. He's preparing his disciples for this moment. In the passage we looked at earlier from Matthew, right after Jesus rebukes Peter, he says, anyone who's going to come after me must pick up his cross and follow me. To find your life, you must lose it. He's preparing them. Jesus wants his disciples to see him. He wants his disciples to see his glory and to see that his glory is bound up in the cross. And lastly, Jesus prepares them by going to the cross. Right? He came as the Passover lamb to die in their place for their sin to make a way back to the Father so they could go back to the Father. So just a few days before 
Jesus and the disciples came to the supper room to remember the Passover, um, they were with a friend of theirs named Lazarus. Are you all familiar with the story of Lazarus? So Lazarus' sister, Mary and Martha, sent to Jesus and said, Lazarus, whom you love, is sick, and he's close to death. Please come and save him. And Jesus responds and says, this illness does not lead to death. And he actually stays where he is for two days longer to make sure that Lazarus dies before he shows up. Okay. And then Mary and Martha cry out and say, why did you let this happen? You're, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, right? You could have, we've seen you heal people. You could have prevented this from happening. And in the passage, it's actually John 11. I wasn't planning on going here, but we can go here. Um, so if you look at John 11... Sorry, I'm used to the red letter edition. (laughs) Okay, I'm just going to start in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, Let's go to Judea again. Now they had just left Judea because the Jews... uh, the Jewish leaders were getting really upset and were threatening to kill Jesus. So they, they fled and came to, um, came to Bethany. He's saying, let's go back to, to Judea, to Lazarus. So Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. He wants them to see the glory of God. He wants them to see that Jesus has the power over death. And so he lets Lazarus die. And Martha and Mary say, Mary say why? Jesus' disciples say, why? Why do, you, why do you have to go to the cross? Why do you have to leave us? And Jesus, is, he wants them to see this for the glory of God so they can see the glory of God in the cross. Okay, so Jesus is going to make a way for his disciples to come back to the Father on the cross. He's going to take on their sin. He's going to feel the separation from the Father in their place so that they can be made one with the Father. After that, he's going to send his spirit to seal them and to help them, remember, to to keep them from falling away. So back in John 16, we see several different roles of the spirit. He's going to help them to not fall away. The spirit is going to lead them into all truth. And the spirit's actually going to give them words to speak. And we'll see that in just a minute. So going back to our friend Peter, who was there in the upper room, who's anxious now because the Messiah, who he thought that they had found and had given up everything to follow for three years, was now saying he was going to leave them. Peter, before the Spirit, before Jesus had given them the Spirit, was overzealous, was unstable. He never seemed to understand what Jesus was talking about. Even in this passage here, Peter says to Jesus, I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. And Jesus says, actually, before the night's out, you're going to deny me three times. Which he does, of course. Um, 
Peter, following slowly behind Jesus as he heads to the high priest, is called out by a servant girl. And she says, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? And Peter says, no, I, I, I don't know him. This is hours after they had remembered the Passover with Jesus. Peter's denying him. So this is, Jesus before, this is Peter before Jesus sends the Spirit. After Jesus goes to the cross, he resurrects, and he comes back and he shows himself to his disciples. And one of the things he does when he uh, comes back to reveal himself to the, his disciples is he tells Peter, Peter, you're actually going to die the same way that I died. You're going to your own cross. And then right after that, he tells him, follow me. Jesus knows that Peter's road ends in a cross, and he tells him to follow me anyway. He wants him to partake in the ministry that Jesus has, including the suffering, so that he can partake in the glory. So another little uh, snapshot of Peter here. When Jesus tells him he's, he's got his own cross in front of him, uh, John tells us that Peter looks across the room and sees John standing there and basically says to Jesus, well, what about him? And Jesus tells him, look, don't worry about John. Peter, you follow me. It's, it's funny because it's Peter, but it's also a really sweet moment where you see, Tom mentioned this during the liturgy, that Jesus is tender with Peter. He's saying, Peter, you follow me. So what happens to Peter when the Holy Spirit comes? Sorry, I've got one more uh, instance before the Holy Spirit. Uh, moving into Acts now. Uh, Jesus is about to ascend back into heaven, ascend back to the Father, to the glory that he knew before, and, uh, and then send his Spirit to help his disciples. And his uh, disciples were actually there when Jesus ascended back up into heaven. And right before he does that, to the resurrected Jesus, his disciples say, so are you going to restore Israel now? Clearly still not getting what Jesus is doing. But then the Spirit comes, and Peter denied Jesus to a servant girl in front of the, the high priest, Peter, preaches boldly, proclaims the name of Jesus, and 3,000 people believe. He's even citing minor prophets in his sermon. And again, these were young men, generally uneducated men. They were, you know, Peter was a fisherman, uh, exercising a real command of the Scriptures. This is the function, one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to give them the words to speak. This is Jesus empowering them to carry on his ministry in the world. Oh, yeah, I got a quick shout-out for Corey here. I told Corey I was super anxious about this, and she prayed for me earlier, and she asked God to give me Godfidence. She calls Godfidence, which I really appreciate. I said, that's exactly what Jesus does through the Holy Spirit for Peter. Peter's got Godfidence now. He's no longer shying away. In fact, he'll end his life suffering well in Jesus' name by going to his own cross, literally his own cross. Godfidence. All right, let's look at uh, Jesus 17. I'm sorry. I told you guys I was anxious. Let's look at John 17. This is Jesus' prayer in John 17. It's really awesome. What, so just to tie this up, Jesus came to do the will of the Father. The will of the Father is revealed in Scripture, right? So Jesus came to fulfill all the Scripture, doing what God wanted him to do. What God wants Jesus to do, why he sent Jesus, he sent him to bring us back into fellowship with him. And we're going to see that in Jesus' prayer. So Jesus had just celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He'd washed their feet. Um, Judas had betrayed him. 
during dinner. And Jesus comforted his disciples now that they're freaking out that he's about to leave them. And the very next thing he does is he goes to his father and he prays for his disciples. So we're going to look at John, John 17, 1 through 5 first. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world. So Jesus is saying, I've, I, I'm, I've done what you sent me to do. I've finished your work. I've made you known to the people that you asked me to make you known to. Now restore me to the glory that I knew before I, before I came into this world. So Jesus left glory to come and do this. He left perfect fellowship with the Father to come die on the cross in our place to make a way for us back to the Father. All right, verses 6 through 19. I have have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours, and and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer glorified in the world. I'm sorry. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may, may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's Judas. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus says, I kept, I've kept the ones that you've given me. They were yours, and you gave them to me to keep, and I kept them. I went to the cross so that they could be brought back into the fold. And just as you have sent me into the world to do this work, so I am now sending them into the world. So Jesus made a way for us to be brought back into fellowship with him and the Father. Jesus is going back to the Father, to the glory he knew before. And we now get to participate in the fellowship of the Father and the Son by carrying on Jesus' work of making the Father known in the world. And he's given us his spirit to help with that. And finally... Verses 20 to 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So this is not just a word for the disciples. Jesus says, I'm not only praying for the ones that you've given me, but for anyone who would believe because of their words. This is for us too. Everything that we've talked about this morning that Jesus has done for the disciples, he's done in Christ for us too. Jesus has made a way for us to be reconciled to the Father and he's brought us into that fellowship and the way that he the way that we participate in that fellowship is by carrying on Jesus' ministry in the world. This is better than, so the passage is about suffering, right? Uh, Jesus is telling his disciples they're going to suffer, and he's comforting them. This is the, the better balm in this passage, is that Jesus is not only comforting them, he, he knows and he's preparing them. Uh, he's actually making them one with himself. Okay, we've got one more passage. It's on page 526. That's wrong. Sorry. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 6. If you beat me there, let me know the page. Thank you. 562. Okay, we're going to be looking at chapter 4. Verse 6 and following. Before we get in there, just be thinking about the disciples in the upper room, anxious that the Messiah, who they thought had come to deliver them, was now going away to be with the Father, right? And Jesus really going to the cross to make a way for them back to the Father. This is what Paul, who now understands what Jesus was doing, writes in the second letter to Corinthians. Chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I'm gonna stop here. We are afflicted in every way. Jesus knew that the road that he was calling us to was a road of suffering, um, <clears throat> and though we are afflicted in every way, we won't be crushed. In Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, the prophet uh, describes Jesus as a man of sorrows, and he says it was the will of the Father to crush him. Jesus has, Jesus has been crushed for us, so we don't have to be crushed. Um, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're going to have doubts. We're going to be confused about the way God is working in our lives, but we don't have to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Jesus, again, on the cross, was forsaken in our place so that we don't have to be forsaken. And struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So the disciples have spent three years with Jesus, Jesus explaining the whole time, my kingdom's not of this world. To get to glory, you've got to go through the cross. Um, he raised Lazarus from the dead to try and communicate this point more poignantly, and they still don't get it. And the last way that Jesus tries to show the disciples what he's doing in the cross is by instituting uh, what we call the Lord's Supper. And we practice this every week to remember Jesus' death in our place for our sins, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in that upper room with his disciples. He broke the bread and he said, take this. This is my body broken for you. The disciples who said, Lord, let it never be so with you. You'll never, you'll never go to the cross. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilled for you. And again, like I said, everything that's been true about the disciples in this passage is true for us. So we can now take our seat at the table in the upper room alongside the disciples so that we can take up our cross with them and be one with them in Christ. Let's pray, and then we will do communion. Jesus, we thank you that you came in perfect obedience to do the will of the Father in accordance with the scriptures. That you didn't come seeking a life of ease. You didn't come to establish your kingdom and rightfully claim what was yours, but you submitted all of your desires to the will of the Father. And God, we're glad that your will is so tender towards us that you sent Jesus because you wanted to bring back your people. You sent him to make a way for us on the cross. And God, I pray that for those of us who are struggling to understand what you're doing in the world, what you did through your son Jesus, that you would give us eyes to see, to see that his glory is in the cross, that Jesus, in going to the cross, was doing the will of the Father. And it was good because he was making a way for us to be reunited with you. God, if there are people here this morning that have never seen your glory in the cross, I pray that they would see it this morning and that they would know that you love them and that you want to bring sheep back into the sheepfold to experience the glory that you had with the Father from all eternity. God bless us as we leave this place. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are a couple of stations. Um, just come up and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup. This is a, a meal shared by believers to remember, just like Jesus and his disciples were remembering God's faithfulness and delivering them in the Passover. We share this meal every Sunday together to remind each other that Jesus went to the cross for us, that we might be reconciled to the Father. So if you believe that, you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, come and partake of this meal. Remember Jesus' death until he comes. If you've not yet heard that, uh, we just ask that you stay in your seat. Certainly after the service, if you want to talk to somebody about it, come find me, uh, Tom.
Bear with me for just a minute. I'm going to read just another passage from uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead before I do our benediction. Uh, this is the part I couldn't find earlier. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Lazarus is dead. Martha saying, why didn't you just come? Jesus said, said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Then he goes on to raise Lazarus and he said, didn't I tell you if you looked, you would see the glory of God. We do have a good, good father in heaven and he loves us so much so that he sent his son to come back and get us and make us one with him. And we're gonna suffer and we're gonna not understand what he's doing. Um, But just like what Jesus is telling Martha, he is the resurrection and the life. We have life in Christ. Um, So believe that as we go here today. Our benediction, if I can find it, is from Revelation. Maybe it's not. Uh, There we go. So this is what we have to look forward to. Like the Jews, we're now waiting for Jesus to come back, right? But when he comes back, this time he's going to come back just like uh, the disciples thought he was coming the first time. He's coming back for good to uh, establish his kingdom. And this is what John, who wrote this gospel, said uh, in the book of Revelation. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Peace be with you.